Hailed as a modern music evangelist by Time Out New York, pianist, composer, and author Adam Tendler recently co-curated an innovative music series at the Broad Museum in Los Angeles. The series, called Crosshatched, included three evenings of music in conversation with the museum's exhibition, Jasper John's Something Resembling Truth. I sat down with Adam in downtown LA the day before his Broad recital, where no topic was off limits. I used to, do you know, I used to do, do radio. Really? <laughs> yeah. I used to, when I was in Houston, okay, well, when I was doing the 50 state tour, I visited radio stations and I thought it was really fun. And then after that, in Vermont, gosh, how did this happen? Wait, I want to hear how the 50 state tour happened. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the order in which all this stuff happened, but hmm, I think I I think that at a certain point I just wanted to get like trained or somehow figure out how to do radio stuff because when I was traveling, I was such a passenger. Like I would just like they would sit me in the chair and basically what's happening now, and I didn't know how anything worked. Right now I don't again, <laughs> but also the technology has totally changed and just 10 years or 15 a little over but so anyway, when you were performing I would perform yeah, and I then you would do a, like a radio yeah spot. I, and so but I really enjoyed it and so I started at this like community station out in the woods in this like independent college near where I lived that's why I'm kind of confused because I think I must have undergone my FCC authorization or whatever it's called like during the tour like I must I stopped at home like two times for about a month at a time in Vermont I like returned home it must have happened during one of those times and then you would go back out yeah like a solo tour yeah you didn't know this? No. Oh. <laughs> well, no, I saw a little bit of it, but <laughs> no one knows this anymore. It, I mean, it used to be why I think I would get gigs and get concerts. Okay, tell the story. Well, so when I um went to well, so when I was in Indiana, when I was at the conservatory, when I was at Indiana University, and even that the name of Indiana University School of Music, it's not even called that anymore. It has a new name. Everything changes. But um when I left, I really had no direction. I actually left early. I left about a semester early. So I was there three and a half years, but it's because I really maxed out all of my credits. I was kind of freakishly, I don't know, I would lock myself in the practice room and I just stayed there for summers and I basically maxed out all of my credits. There's a reason for this and you part, were part of the story. Yeah, I was a piano, a piano performance, performance okay. major. And I think even that felt like a fluke, even though I got into the school. I mean, that's a whole other story, but I really was in an overcompensation mode the entire time I was at Indiana. And so I practiced a lot, but I think I also practiced myself into like a real state of anxiety. And by the time I got to, you know, my senior recital, I was like a real mess. And I actually, f we had, you have to do a hearing a recital hearing before you do the recital. It's actually the hearing you get graded on. And I failed mine. <laughs> and it was like it was like a couple weeks before 
I was expecting to graduate. And I but actually, not from preparation. You I, failed because I failed because I got on the stage and like the whole jury was there and I completely fell apart. Um and it was it was it was really bad. Like I think I was just so nervous. And that beca- that was like a sort of the a trend or whatever throughout my entire time at IU is I would get so nervous. And um, because I was practicing so much that it would always be leading up to this one concentrated moment where I had to prove what I had been practicing, you know. And of course it would always, you know, fail to reach what I had expected it would do. But um, so it was weird. I had all my posters and stuff for the recital all over the school already, and I failed the hearing, and so I had to go... No, you yeah, had to take them down. I had to take them down. Oh, it was no. really humiliating, and it was really traumatic. And um, I almost quit. Like, I almost quit school a couple weeks before I was supposed to graduate. I was so disillusioned. But not were you thinking about quitting piano? I don't know. I mean, every time I would perform, I would think about quitting piano <laughs> because I just, it was so painful it was painful to always hit against this feeling of lack or feeling of i don't know surprise of like how did this expectations right and why is there no mechanism in music school there's no one you can go to and say this is what's happening yeah you know that's that's true actually um yeah i it's it's a funny thing because indiana is also a really big school and so when i got there I uh I don't know I also felt a real sense of having to sink or swim and I really swam and I was hustling hard just to try to create an identity even there but there was a lot of throughout my whole time there I was really trying to figure out what it meant to be a pianist and right. it was while I was there that like September 11th happened and I know it might sound it seems kind of corny but even that sort of made me wonder what are we all doing in this musical laboratory? Like, why are we doing this? See, there's so many bigger things going on. And am I trying to be like Horowitz? Like, what are we, what are we doing? Like the whole thing seemed really absurd. And I started composing, like I was really trying to figure out some way to find some sort of meaning or significance to what I was doing. Um, but anyway, long story short is when I left school, so I actually, I did redo the hearing and passed and did the recital and I just left like I did my exams and I just was out of there they mailed me my diploma I didn't or whatever it is yeah I didn't go back I didn't do the ceremony I was just out of there but I was thinking well what's next and I was just like thinking maybe I'll I didn't know how anything worked I didn't even know how anything worked even when I went to school like I just thought I'd just go to music school because I like music (laughs) you know it was really naive and I was just as naive when I left. I mean, talk about not really being prepared for the real world. I was like, I'll put together a thing that I think is called a press kit. It totally wasn't. It was like this horrible headshot and like some in- inflated bio <laughs> that I it wasn't made up. I had like a quote from a critic or you know what I mean? But it was weird. And I sent it out to like... It's it's embarrassing to even talk about, but I would I sent it out to like agencies, and of course they were like, "Who are you?" This like child, and so again I was like floundering and still thinking, "Well, how do I create an identity in music?" 
Also, how do I learn to play music, even though I just graduated from music school? Now, what were you playing at that time? Were you into Cage? Yeah, I was into modern music and modern American music. What's funny is that I didn't really play any Cage. I had, um, I, I had like talked about Cage and I had maybe dabbled in a piece for like a mock lecture that I had to give. I was really like into Ives and Copeland and and like extreme experimentalists and minimalists from like the 60s and 70s. I was I was really still kind of into the entire buffet, but I wasn't really playing the whole buffet. I mean, in school again, I would I would dabble in that I would go and listen to as much as I could. Back then, there wasn't really like Spotify or even I don't even think YouTube was this hub of music. Our school had like, it had digitized some of its library. You had to actually be in the library to hear this stuff, which shows how, again, in 10 years, how things change. But that's how I listened to a lot of music. And I would just like look at it. So I would actually go into the section where there was John Cage scores and I would just kind of sit on the floor and just leaf through them and um, kind of just like lovingly peering and, and kind of peeking through them. And But I never really played it. And I don't know if it's because I didn't quite know where I would start. I really had always liked sonatas and interludes since high school, but that's about all I knew. And then I would like look at these scores and think, oh my gosh, this like where do you even start with this stuff? Um, but there wasn't really a platform at IU to do it. But um, I knew that I was gravitating toward modern music, and even my professors knew that. It was pretty clear. Um, and they were supportive for the most part? <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly. know. Yeah, I don't really... I mean, there was an agenda. Like, I had to check off certain boxes to, to get through these certain... Um, you know, to get through each musical gauntlet to get to the next grade. Um, it's amazing, the party lines... Yeah. And we're studying something that is so antithesis to that, right? Well, and I think that's why the senior thing was so kind of weird and traumatic is that I think my teacher had sort of had it with me in a in a quasi-supportive way, I guess. But I think he was sort of tired of me bringing weird stuff to the door like like a cat you know brings like the dead bird <laughs> and I which bring, is a gift yeah it was a gift and I really thought I was doing these really cool things like but uh but it and including in classical music but I was like looking for these deep cuts because I just wasn't interested in playing what I was hearing through every other practice room wall it just didn't appeal to me at all it was so much more interesting to find you know m- things that were more off the beaten path. But that last year, he was like, all right, well, you can do the Ives three-page sonata, but I'm going to give you the Wallstein, <laughs> you know? And so we had this, like, tit-for-tat thing, and I actually recently brought back the Wallstein because it was just such, like, a weird event to have to learn this piece. Because he... And anyway, school was just weird, and I was juggling all of those genres all through school and I think trying to wear all those hats successfully but um still when I left there wasn't an extreme sense of like I nailed it and I know exactly how to play the piano in fact it was the opposite any kind of confidence that I might have had even if it was naive when I got there um was gone it was like totally fried by the time I left which was odd because 
I was doing so much performing, especially for an undergrad. It was like astonishing how much performing I had managed to hustle, almost like being in New York now, like just hustling. But um, so was this fifty state tour kind of your catharsis? Absolutely, mm-hmm. and so it was. It was. It was a way to sort of. There was a couple elements. There was one like I think I need to learn how to play the piano, and <laughs> and. In a way, I also had this crazy technical regime. I think I had told myself, well, in order to actually be ready to play a note of my repertoire, I need to do like these two hours of drills and this two hours of warm-up and this thing. And again, that's not realistic. And so I wanted to kind of get myself out of that weird, neurotic, almost utopian <laughs> way of viewing music that, or approaching performance that one actually has in music school. At least I think of that now, even though in music school, it was tough even to find practice time because there's so much else to do. But um, so part of it was to kind of get myself out of that routine. Um, the other was also just like, well, how do I, maybe I need to just get out there and also start to trust myself as a performer, and maybe people will trust me, I don't know. Like sending out my horrible headshot and like my weird bio and some weird CDs isn't going to really do it. Um, but you must have been so curious just to see the country. Yeah, right? and, and then there was, there was also who that. Who are these people that are listening? I had always wanted to, to travel, and I was running out. My health insurance was going to expire the next year. There was a lot of going on. I was having like health issues, Um, and it just felt like I had to do this then or never. Also, there was this sense of like escaping because I was completely like in the closet. And so that was a big part of it too. Um, I think music in general, getting involved in classical music or starting to play classical music back in high school, it was a kind of escape anyway. And it was very sexual, actually. Like, it was sort of a barrier to put up against sort of the bullying that was happening. And I, I, I remember it was a very clear and not at all, like, subtle thing. It was very calculated. I thought, oh, you know, I play music. <laughs> it seems to, like... And I was thinking, well, I'm also having a connection with this music, and that wasn't modern music. It was like Chopin and Rachmaninoff and all these romantic composers that I was having a real cathartic connection with. But I was also seeing, in a weird way, and I hate to say it, it I'm sort of ashamed to say it, but I could see that talent or whatever it was that had accrued over time since I was like six was impressive to people, especially like... It was like uniformly impressive, even to people who were bullies and who who could target me. They could almost be diffused by me having this weird talent that I could play the piano. Right. And so that was also sort of like, well, if I just dive into this thing, I can kind of create this little cocoon of music around me. A shelter or a distraction. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, totally. I I basically stopped going to class. It was not unlike college where I just did all my classes and completely dove into the work and then found myself like maxed out early. It was like that in school. By my senior year, I had like no real classes to take anymore. And I just would come to school and practice. I would stay late in practice. The school would be locked around me. 
And in a way, it was just like, well, I'm doing music now, <laughs> and that's it. And like, don't come near me. And, it, and it, in a weird way, it worked. But then I did the same thing. Really? <laughs> yes. But then later on in my 30s, I realized, oh, the function has now changed. Because it's not just a shelter. Right. Now you have to go into the real world to be a professional. So how did you change that role from this is my... This well, is a special thing to now... Well, there's many people doing it. Well, that's the thing that was... So it served a sort of protective function in the beginning. I, I guess I bring it up because it seems I was always using it for some sort of protection or some sort of tool, which was not really fair to it. And it rarely delivered fully. So the tour was also this like, oh, I know, I'll go and do this 50-state tour. It just seemed natural. I'm going to try to hit every state. It'll be an experiment to see if I can do that. No funding came through because I had no plan. So everyone was like, no, we're not giving you money. You don't know what you're doing. And I said, I know, and that's the point. And they were like, okay, no. Um, But all of that aside, I think I had this expectation of like, also, by the time I come out at the end of this, or the other side of this, I'll totally like have it all figured out. And I'll either have come out of the closet or like I'll be straight or I don't know what it was, but somehow I figured everything was going to settle and all of this stuff going on with my like personal identity, which was also like upside down in college when I had like a million straight crushes and all you know what I mean that whole nonsense that whole horrible toxic thing so what state did you come out of the closet in? <laughs> and I didn't so oh. that's a thing I'm coming out I'm, now no, I'm just kidding <laughs> no that's the weirdest thing well it's not the weirdest thing but what's weird is that I was also super gay like I was having all these like I maybe that's not what we were planning on talking about oh, no. but I was uh, I Perfect. mean that was what was so strange about it is I look back on that and think, well, I was 100% gay. Like, everything I was doing was gay. And yet, somehow I rationalized everything, even on the tour. Um, and that's what's so... So when, when the tour ended, I was completely still in the closet. I'd had accrued a, a bunch of interesting and, you know, gay experiences. But I was still wrestling with everything. It was so weird and, and of course disappointing but of course it was going to be the tour the music that's not what it's I was assigning this job to it but so that so my point I guess is that the tour happened for a whole bunch of reasons um when it ended I ended up in Houston that's where I came out um and I I ended up really loving Houston. It just so happened, like, I played a concert in Houston. It was, like, my 48th state or something. It was right toward the end. And um, and I was offered a job. And I was like, oh, okay. And I spent the summer, actually, here in L.A. <clears throat> I worked at a veterinary clinic in Malibu. And, and um, it was during that time, I was like, am I going to go live in Texas? And I did. And that's really where I started to sort of settle into who I was. I, you know, I, I basically realized I was lying to my family. At a certain point, I was like, you know, this, I always told myself if I was lying to my family, like actually straight up lying about where I'm going and living a double life, then I'm going to come out and that's what started to happen and I was like all right well I have to do this um but yeah it, it's uh 
And your family incredibly supportive? Yeah, they they are. And of the they, piano. <laughs> the pia- oh, yeah, the piano. Yes, they were always supportive of that. I mean, I'm also just thinking back into Houston. The book that I wrote about the tour, which is still about that journey, um, not to use an overused word, but it really was a journey, um, it still actually took being in Houston and actually coming out and settling into be- being out um, that I realized, oh, like, this book is actually about coming out. Like, my journals were all filled with, like, lies and weird codes. I mean, that's how, like, in denial I really was. That would be a great title for a cage piece, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what? Lies and great codes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, it's interesting. I tell people sometimes, like, the, the closet can be sort of misconstrued. I think people can think that when someone's in the closet, they have this like secret that they have that they're not telling anybody else. Mm. Like I'm gay, but I'm not telling anybody. And I was like, the truth is what you tell other people, at least in my experience, what I was telling other people, I totally believed, which Mm. is what I'm saying is so weird when I look back and be like, whoa, yeah, that, that was, was a, a gay person. <laughs> that was a closet of mirrors. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, anyway, so would you I don't know consider how we got on that? Well, this is this is fantastic. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. This episode of Classical Chops is sponsored by the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, committed to making great music personal. The Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra has concerts for everyone. From Baroque music to full, lush orchestral concerts and contemporary music, see what's playing at laco.org. Enjoy 10% off your ticket order using the code CLASSICALCHOPS. Have you thought about doing the 50-state tour again from where you're at now? I actually think about it a lot. I think about, yeah, well, I think about how much I saw and how much I learned and actually how much I learned I did I do think I learned how to play the piano and I did in a way learn how to trust myself as a performer because night after night people would trust me and so even when I talk to people who are in school performers who are in school for performance I try to remind them like people will trust you if you are actually putting yourself out there and if you trust yourself yeah I mean even if you're just pretending to trust yourself. I mean, once you're on that stage, you are trusting yourself. You know what I mean? Even if we have doubts or whatever. But, I mean, no one, no one's ever going to go on stage planning to humiliate themselves. So it makes, there is a certain amount of trust. And, I mean, that's what I learned is that people actually were just showing up. And it was a modern American program. And that's where the 50 states, I was like, well, if I'm doing 50 state tour, I'm going to do American music and not like be an ambassador of German, you know, <laughs> then it seemed a little weird. So, um, but yeah, I, I think about going back out sometimes, but now it's like interesting because now I'm sort of grounded in all these jobs. I mean, I did it at that time because it seemed like it was such a window and what I'm realizing is it kind of was, you know, it would be really hard, I think, to do it now. But if just ever logistically. there was a time yeah. that needed... Totally. Well, you know, it's also interesting is like, there. I wasn't like on any kind of social media. It, Facebook, was, Facebook was a thing for um, like college students at the time. I think there was like a thing called Friendster. I mean, it was like, it was, <laughs> I wasn't in any of that. Um, so it's interesting now 
that kind of entrepreneurial thing is such a thing now. Yeah. Um, well, sometimes it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. And so, I don't know. I, I think it would look like a whole different kind of animal now. What's interesting, though, is that I was in Houston for a couple of years, and then I went to New York thinking, you know, oh, like, I did a 50-state tour. I was, like, a, in my early 20s. I managed a nonprofit. I was, as is how we first started talking, I was on the NPR station in Houston because traveling, that's how we started talking about that, because I was traveling doing the 50-state tour, and I was in these radio stations, and I wanted to learn how to do it, and eventually was on the classical station again i'm dating myself because at that time the classical music and npr was all one station you know there wasn't like 20 (laughs) nprs for the city which there is now in houston but anyway yeah i was like oh i'm just gonna go to new york and i'm gonna say like i was on npr and i was in and and everyone i'm just like the red carpet's gonna i'm just gonna get any gig and no one cared like no one cared it was like the 50-state tour thing was a cocktail party conversation. The b- Being an announcer on that public radio station was like nothing. It was like I, was, I knew nobody and there was no reason for anything to have started to work. So it was almost like arriving in music school again. It was like, oh, I need to like start Started carving over. out something here. So nothing really fed into anything. I mean, the tour led to getting a job in Houston, but none of that actually translated to making any sort of identity in New York. Well, what were you really after? Well, that's a good question. I mean, in Houston, I that's where I first learned sonatas. Actually, I first started learning Cage's um, sonatas and interludes that summer after the tour. And it was because I was here, I was in Malibu, and I had no piano not really I it's weird like I I was like paying Pepperdine to go practice so I was still practicing but (laughs) it's so weird but um I had like the silent keyboard that I had traveled with which was like this contraption that I traveled with and that's why I started learning Cage's prepared piano sonatas and interludes because I didn't need to actually hear I didn't want to hear an actual piano sound I just wanted the choreography of how to play it and I was memorizing it and that's how I really happened that I first learned Cage's music, which is also a little crazy because that's like his masterpiece for prepared piano. And that's like where I started in terms of for Cage. Um, It was in Houston where I first played it. But Houston in general, I think of those as like the years where I was both an administrator and like, again, like a gay person. Like that's (laughs) all I was doing in Houston. I was like gay and an administrator. Like I was playing the piano. I, I should be fair to myself. I was... I really wasn't much of a performer. That wasn't really what my life seemed to be. It was a lot of like learning how to be gay and weird, weirdly so, like margarita Sundays and like doing the whole gay thing, like circuit part, like that whole crazy thing. I really dipped into that for a minute while having like a classical music life, but I definitely wasn't like a performer. Like, so, I don't know. so it, you feel you're successful in that? Well, pursuit. <laughs> well, it felt weird. I mean... <laughs> Is there anywhere in your life where you'd like to be more gay? <laughs> I'd like to be a little... Well, it's funny because that's so not my life now um, that it's interesting to actually see it still existing and being like, oh my gosh, like, 
I used to wear a harness, like so weird. <laughs> I got a place for you. It's like I know, um, totally, three blocks right? away. Yeah. But I, I, but I think I was still just sort of figuring it out. Like, and there was like that identity I was figuring out. And once that sort of happened, I was like, okay, well, but what I think I'm really on the planet to do and where I feel most fulfilled is actually in sharing music with people. And um, it was a really, eventually, like things kind of started to fall apart in Houston in a a bunch of different ways. And so I was like, I think this is the sign that I'm going to go to New York City. And that's exactly what happened. And it just, there the kind of performance side of my life started to that garden started to grow a little more because I actually started gardening in it you know what I mean like it wasn't just you know it it was sort of weeded over for a little while of course when I was doing the 50 states it was like that's who I was in Houston as we've established I was a homosexual that's all (laughs) I was a professional (laughs) homosexual and an arts administrator with like obligato pianist and then after that, it was sort of like... It, it, Avant-garde concert piano, natural progression. <laughs> totally. And so it, it's it's interesting how that happened. And But never was like the goal to be, oh, I'm going to become like John Cage specialist. And I still don't really think that that's... It's just like it's a, he's a composer who I like to share with people. But there's so many other composers who I'm playing and who interest me. Um, and so... Yeah. It, but I his mean, own background seems just as complex. Yeah. Not that there are artists that don't have complex backgrounds. But. I think that that might have been also, maybe that was some of the appeal. The more I kind of learned about him and the more I, the more I started to see the ways he would explore his own psychology and his own way of... Um, I don't know. I think the ability to reorient perception. Yeah. Right? Is that what... Well, and also to sort of reconcile parts of himself that he was less comfortable with and he trying to sort of find his way through things. I know I'm I'm close enough with the John Cage Trust that I know that I think for good reason they don't really like kind of a psychoanalytical reading of, of Cage because what I think what I think that they think (laughs) and but I would agree is that it tends to actually become a mirror of whoever's doing the psychoanalysis it's sort of cage because the music is so abstract I guess by definition in that it's such it can shapeshift to any kind of situation or any kind of need or whatever but we uh, at another level we don't actually need their permission because we have the it's, music. It is there, yeah. right. <laughs> it's right. And, and that's the thing, listen though. Listen to the it's, music. It's, it can kind of, like a liquid, it can kind of fit into so many different uh, vases that I think there is also just this danger of, like, well, I could read it as, like, well, he was solving his homosexual problem or whatever. <laughs> you know, right, I was, right. I'm using those in huge air quotes of, like, well, that that sort of lifelong way of sort of wrestling with just his own deeply felt emotions, forget gay stuff, but like his own sort of deeply felt emotions and the emotions of being a human being on the planet and the pain and the ups, the highs and the lows that come with it, how he would, his lifelong kind of quest to equalize those or to work with those and to, and how that translates, that reveals, I think more about me. (laughs) You know what I mean? If I'm doing that. And I think that's sort of where they're coming from. I think it's why they sort of are hesitant. They, I mean, if there's gatekeepers of Cage, and I'm not sure there really are, but I 
I can sense that there's a sort of reluctance to read him through any of these kind of easily read, um, I don't know. Like filters? Filters. Mm. The Zen filter, the the gay filter, the, you know, I don't know, Southern California filter. I don't know. There's so many. The, the, the mushrooms. The mushroom filter. <laughs> there's so many things. But the, but truth, they're all, the truth is they're all well, valid. They're all part of this really complex person. and who. But that's the thing is who's not, you right. know? And that's why I think is so interesting about Cage is that whenever I'm like describing his music or the challenges of his music to anybody it just becomes really clear that i'm describing any other composer like if i'm describing the length of something or you know how the sort of being forced into presence i immediately start thinking about bruckner <laughs> you know? like I'm, you know what i mean i'm thinking like well if i'm going to sit around for like an hour and a half listening to a symphony that's also uncomfortable you know what i mean like i or it can be uncomfortable it can lead something to something to surrender to totally you have to surrender to it and so it's not just a cage thing. And I think that for some listeners, because I think he had such a powerful personality and such a powerful and provocative, I suppose. Well, and the surface could trick everyone, right? Right. Well, and on the surface could say something that could just turn the entire current of any conversation toward that direction. Right. But all great art does this. Right. Lures away those that don't get it. Well, and that's the thing. I mean. Right. I, I th- a big target. Well, the targets in, in the, the Johns. Johns. It's like yeah, I think, but I think that because Cage, the music is very strong and very evocative, and there's every piece has such a strong thought. It's almost like you see the tree, but there's all these roots below it, um, and so it's hard to even define the thing. Well, where is the tree start and end and whatever? A lot of his music is in a way a living thing. I mean, it's activated, but because he himself is this avatar of like this very charismatic, powerful personality that I think some listeners or some people who don't even know the music get stuck right there. They get stuck right on him and that whatever they heard about him or whatever half sentence they read about him and let germinate in their mind. Oh, he's the one who did the silent piece. And then they'll say the wrong duration, like, you know, three and a half (laughs) seconds. You know what I mean? (laughs) And it's like, all right, let's start over, you know, but... That doesn't happen with so many other composers because so many other composers didn't put forward also this charismatic, powerful philosopher avatar accompanying the music. And so I think some people can or maybe, maybe they did, and now time has that right. too. Yeah, no, it's that too. So anyway, so wait, how would that? Have, how would your tra- trajectory towards coming out have been different without music? You oh didn't God, have, yeah. What would what would have? No, I don't know what I would have done. Right. I actually really don't. I mean... I think I would have been dead. I really... No. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> I'm not kidding either. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a line in my book that's... I mean, if there's a strong or very potent to the point of poisonous line in the book that I wrote during the tour was that... I think um, I'll probably misquote it, but I say um, coming out is something I always thought about but never thought I'd be courageous enough to do like suicide Hmm. and to me both of them it was but that's where i was and to me those were just almost like weirdly just as equal leaps to take which is crazy to say but um i wasn't happy you know i wasn't happy and and gay feelings 
those attractions certainly weren't making me happy either. And so coming surrendering to them actually was so euphoric. I'll never forget it. It's kind of Text- a metaphor for a lot of Cage's work. Yeah. You almost have to come out of the closet for every piece. Yeah. Well, you know what's so funny? <laughs> so funny. I've never thought of that. Well... Which just explain why the audience can be so well, uncomfortable. There, there is a there is a book by there's a Cage biography that came out called Begin Again, yeah. and I think it's such a great title, Kenneth Silverman. Yeah, because that is what he makes any performer do when they engage one of his pieces. You begin again, and so you do take that leap, and it's super, and it's humbling, and 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 crushing, and amazing, and euphoric, and exciting, and all of those things. And so you're in, a, in it's kind. You're kind of right because it it does feel like this new new thing time and again, and even the same piece can be new every time. So, well, let's talk about the audience. Yeah, part of the reason I reached out to you is because I went to the first. I went to the first concert at the Broad and um, with a friend uh, who's a bass player in the opera orchestra. So we knew what we were getting into mm-hmm. and looked around and it was a different kind of crowd. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> yeah, interesting. And- but I thought, you know what? These people can take it. There's something called YouTube. I'm sure they've all done their research. Oh, no. No. And I looked over and I saw some people I knew and I thought, oh, no. Um, <laughs> Like, this is not going to go well. And your performance was unbelievable. Well, thank you. Unbelievable. Um, but I was extremely distracted by the audience. Yeah. Because they were so... And I was literally in the last row, so I could see them all. Oh, my God. And it was just... Oh. So I contacted you because I thought, I would love to have something for people to grab onto. I mean, you, you did a great job of introducing the pieces, but there's... And like we're talking about, it's... There's yeah. so many dimensions to the depth. You can't do a pre-concert talk on that necessarily. Or you could get, you could try, and you could get lost in it, which right. I, which I can tend to do too. Which or alienate, is, maybe do more damage. Right. So, or you know also what I mean. set it up in a way that also almost dictates too much where people are going to go with it too. So it's a it's a tricky dance. But um, so tell me a little bit about how how you deal with that. Well. I I try to yeah so I try to put a couple drops into that the water you know into the water of the audience so that so what what I want to avoid is hostility and like hostility either way so that they don't think what I'm doing is hostile and as an extension that what the composer has done is hostile and I don't want them to therefore be hostile toward me or the composer um, and so I try to think, well, how can, not like everything is so tough, you know, but <laughs> when, when, when music doesn't necessarily, when it's unfamiliar, you know, in any way, even a Philip Glass piece that's so pretty can all, it, if it's, if it's so nonlinear, if it goes on just a little longer than is expected, it, uh, then we break into anxiety because it's somehow seeming like the record's broken or when is this ending? It's like this sense of losing control. Um, and so going into a performance scenario, I try to think of how to diffuse that or how to um, excite my listener in a way so that they're anticipating what could have been this is not dissimilar to me in high school trying to befriend the bullies i mean it's it's actually almost exactly the same of targeting targeting the threat 
and trying to like put a little needle in it, like an acupuncture thing and thinking, okay, like if I put that there, I think it's going to solve this thing over here. And it's not doing a major talk or major intervention. What I want is for people to sort of just expect enough so that they can say, oh, that's what he was talking about. Or, oh, like, yeah, like, so that they're on my side. And so even if it's the most difficult sounding thing or the most difficult thing to wrap one's arms around, they're already expecting maybe, oh, yeah, he said that. That was not like I go up there and say, well, this is going to be really ugly. I will never do that either. But somehow to find a way to get them on my side. Um, and so I try to do that without apologizing for and that's the, what's tricky is how to do that without apologizing for the music or simplifying it and make it a disclaimer yeah exactly or or coddling them and just being like also just acknowledging that it's not like hey i get this so here's how you can get it too if you're more like me i'm not really interested in that either right, right. and um i had a student the other day who's just like kind of puzzled about some of the music I play because I think his assumption was that I go home and I listen to it <laughs> or like that. I don't get that, that it presents challenges to the listener, that it's not like wallpaper music and different challenges. I and mean, this could be part of the problem with the digital engagement, right. especially with the kids, right? They're used to just click on Spotify. I don't like it. I move on. Right. Exactly. A which 30 again, minute piece for solo piano. Right. Which, which brings us back, I think to that idea of control. Right. And the surrender. That's yeah. what it is, right? Yeah. When well, you're listening to Cardi B, <laughs> you're, there's no surrender. Well, for actually for me, there's surrender. Well, yeah, you have to surrender. <laughs> but you know, like when I, there was an apartment that, I moved into in New York with my now husband and at the time uh, we were dating and I remember I was uh, starting to play I was starting to practice I had an upright and I was doing like this really pretty quiet Ned Roram like little portrait piece and the neighbor slammed on the wall like boom 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 and it like sent a shiver through me and of course it was like, oh my God, I just moved here. Like now this is what's going to happen. It was a total nightmare. But I I always think of that woman because I think, I don't think she was, she wasn't mad about the music. She was mad about the loss of power and control. Right. And she had lost control of her space. And something invading her space. Right. Which I was actually, invisible. I get it. I mean, but that's what it was more about. And I think resistance in an audience or resistance in a listener is about, doubt and lack of control. I don't know where this is going and I don't know why and I don't know what's going on. Like, but it's, it's less, I think about the specifics and it's more about like, who's driving this ship and right. where are we going? Right. And there's a caged lecture, which I hope to do this summer, um, called where are we going and what are we doing? And I think that that's like the big question on a lot of these concerts. I asked that question too. I think if anything, I've been to a lot of these uh, enough concerts that I also, like you were saying, surrender. I've maybe, at least if I've accrued or acquired one skill, it's to at least learn to be like, all right, well, I need to just go with this. Or I could resist it and be like, when is this over? When is this over? When is this over? I don't know what's going on. I don't agree with this choice. I don't know. This isn't what I would do. Like, I could do that for 20 minutes, but what? who's gaining from that? Like, what's gained? Except me getting mad. 
But not everyone's going to do that. I think some people might just get stuck right there. Be like, what is going on? I hate this. There's a threshold. Right. Right. Everyone's going to get to a different one. And so I try to at least poke a couple holes in that so that there's an expectancy of like, so in the second concert at the Broad, I played Cheap Imitation, which is 35 minutes of a solo line. Right. And it's really pretty, but it's really nonlinear. And it's, and I mean, it's tough. It's really tough. In San Francisco, I was terrified because someone was snoring in the front row in the first piece, which was like really raucous, was the Perilous Night, prepared piano drums, like very, very, um, excited piece a really animated piece and i was like oh my god they're snoring now like cheap imitation is going to be a nightmare but it was interesting going into that piece to have to sort of explain it and be like i did want to say here's how long it's going to be it's in three movements you might feel this this and this please stay with me like stay with me to the other side and part of it is actually slipping in and out of consciousness part of it is actually losing perception a little it's okay it's a part of it i think that's also part of i mean well, that's the, when the reflective surface happens yeah so i mean that's the, the surrender de- right that's what they'll deny themselves because i think there's this idea maybe in classical music that you need to be attentive and understanding and completely engaged you know because you're in a ball gown right because you're at a classical concert you know what i mean all that right. baggage that's none of it's real is like but that music's not insulting you right know I mean? well well that's the thing that mu- that music sounds like the thing i heard on the commercial right you know or the thing i heard on that movie and it's that's okay but again there you can i think one can check out a little easier or at least watch that timeline go, okay, we're here, we're here, we're here. And there's enough history behind some of these other pieces that you can go into it with at least a certain amount of expectation with some of this newer music that just hasn't happened yet. And so that unfamiliarity can lead to sort of, I think, just confusion and a sense of not being in control. And that can be scary for people. Or with someone like Cage, I think a lot of the music sort of, whether they like it or not, puts the audience into a state of like, of having to be present like you have like of stillness and and of having to really be thinking about their bodies in a space and that's really harrowing it's super harrowing and so um and different people react in different ways to that um yeah, what are some of the comments you get i mean well, do you get people that come up and have yeah, I mean so i mean i'm just thinking about a couple things just happening in our culture right now just about where presence sort of rears its head and i think it's interesting to watch our culture like i'm thinking of um emma gonzalez's speech at the um at the march for our lives rally which was mostly silence it was almost it was like six minutes of silence and it was it was incredibly powerful and i mean it was it was it was an amazing I have to say performance because it was so well done and it was so, but it was of course very, it's a very real thing, but I'm the execution was so incredible. What I found was so interesting was to watch the audience for lack of better word, the people watching struggle with presence in those six minutes. And so they would shout at her and they would cheer chant, like talk to her all these ways to, to actually avoid 
confronting what she's making them confront, which is like profound grief and hurt and anger and and presence. And I was really, I I was take just as taken by that. There's this movie out right now called Quiet Place, which is almost entirely it's right. like a thriller. Yes, it's yes, this yes. horror movie, and it's almost it's just, it's like almost a silent film. And it's in, it's really interesting to watch people's reactions to that because what's funny is feels it's the scariest movie. Well, it's scary because you're mostly with yourself the whole time. You're dealing with presence. You're dealing with your body breathing, your own sounds that your body's making, let alone the sounds on the screen. So it's interesting to watch our culture right now kind of poke at this thing called quiet presence and silence, which is very Cajun. In a reflect well, absolutely. I mean that's, that's what <laughs> 433 is about, well, right? And it's, it's attaching a te- intent to... Yeah, it's about framing your... I mean, it's about... It's about a, it could be about a lot of things. Um, and I think maybe Cage might argue it could also be about nothing, you know? And But it's that, that framing of that moment. You'll see just as many reactions and just as many like ways that people try to wriggle out of presence in that moment. Well, you know what one way is? I was reading, I think it was a book by Jocelyn Godwin, Applause. Oh. So after a performance, basically, the por- the portal's open. Right. And the reason we applaud is because that is extremely uncomfortable. Oh, so yeah. So the minute you make well, the sound, it shuts. And we can all go back to our well, comfort zone. Yeah, well, and also just like, if you notice that... Um, I always think that whenever I'm like in a symphonic concert, that in the slow movement which is, I always think, the emotional apex of a piece or whatever, is where all the coughs are happening. People will cough their way through a slow movement like it's nobody's... Forget also just like the breaks where everyone suddenly gets tuberculosis. (laughs) Everyone's (laughs) choking in between, like as if they're just... It's crazy. And of course, I just think it's a nervous tick. Absolutely. A reminder that you're alive... Um, and a physical yeah. way to pull yourself out. Totally, right, right? totally. But it happens even in like these most sensitive move parts of a piece because I think that it's scary. So, <laughs> well, let me ask you this: What about telling the audience this? Well, that's an. I don't know. I mean, so when I've done, so when I've done four thirty three. I've had a whole mix of things. One time it was in a, re- a recording studio because we were recording it. <laughs> we were doing like a video recording of it and we invited an audience in. And um, yeah, they knew what they were. They knew and they were really excited. And what was interesting is that I think that afterwards there was a sense of disappointment because it was so quiet. <laughs> it was like, it was too quiet. And, nah, 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 nah. and I was just thinking, you know, we're coming now to this piece with too much, like too much. It's not like we're expecting it to have this sort of yogic, like transformative power. And I just don't know if it's built that way. I have a twisted fantasy of <laughs> attending a performance and like taking a call on my <laughs> cell phone and just having a full conversation. Well, yeah. Like this, which I guess would be fine. Right. The second um, concert I did at the Broad. Uh, so cage in a way revised four thirty three like a number of ways because there's other silent pieces and there's one that was called 433 number two and it's called zero minutes zero seconds and what's funny about that is it sounds so free because it presents itself as like any act that's amplified maximum 
amplification, no feedback. But underneath it are a lot of rules. Okay. And it has to be, and there's all these, like, things that has to, like, fall under. You have to check a lot of boxes. And to me, it almost, like, was his his way of actually pulling in 433 and saying, like, all right, well, I've watched 433 behave. Oops. I've seen, like, 433 behave out in the world. And here is a revision, in a way. Here's here's another way to, to do presence in a performance i i bring it up because one of his little bullets in that piece is that there can be an interruption and so when i did it at the broad i was and another one of the bullets is that it has there's it's supposed to be fulfilling an obligation um in whole or in part an obligation which is interesting because i've seen people do all sorts of things that are services to be like i've seen people making food for people and I don't know, but I'm like that. I don't know if that's an obligation. It's a gift or it's a service. Mm. It's actually, when you really start to think about what he's asking, it's really tricky. Um, so I was wrapping a wedding gift because I had to, <laughs> had, I had a wedding to go to here. And so I was like, well, this is actually an obligation. I need to wrap this present. I'm, I need to fulfill this thing. And I was h- hoping my phone would ring because that would have been my interruption. And it didn't happen, but I was kind of hoping it would anyway. But no, like I've done 433 and people came up afterwards and they were timing it. And they said, it wasn't 433. It wasn't, you know, and you, it wasn't adding up to 433. I was timing it the whole time. And the truth is, four thirty-three is actually. I, I there's a was it three movements. It's three movements. So there's space between the movements if you want to do it that way. So that's why. But what was so funny is I was like, "That's what you were doing. Like, <laughs> that's how you of all the pieces. That's what you wanted to do during this piece. This opportunity to actually listen to everything you were timing it, and so." You'll see people try to uh, to subtract themselves out of right the comfort level. Here we go again. Right. So, so um. But what's interesting is that that happens with all sorts of um, cage pieces, but just I think pieces in general. I mean, you'll see it in classical concerts all the time. People look at their phones, read the program, like oh, a bunch of different ways. But that was like me on the plane today. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about it. I was like. I was a complete, like, lab rat. I was doing so much, like an insane person. Like, look at the phone. Like, now I'm writing something. Now I'm studying my score. Now, you know, I'm reading. I'm going to get a Coke. Like, it was complete activity nonstop. Like, I couldn't dream of being still. And I'm not proud of that. You know what I mean? Like, I was avoiding presence any way I could because I was trapped. You know, so here I am talking about like, you surrender to the moment. I'm on stage and you shall surrender to my music. And yet I could have just sat there and like looked and thought and closed my eyes or whatever, listened to, oh my God. Contemplated a carnation. I certainly was not. I was a mess. And it was to avoid that actually. So I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I think it happens everywhere and I think it especially happens now. I think our our surroundings are built really to keep us occupied and animated really at all times. One of these devices that we've Yeah. Right. Totally. And I'm a completely a participant in that. I wish I wasn't. At classicalchops.org, we share our vision through artist interviews, our Facebook community, our YouTube channel, 
and original, free, interactive learning activities for both classroom and family use. Our dynamic, free educational modules teach kids about opera, chamber music, and the symphony orchestra. Materials can be downloaded and explored from our website, classicalchops.org. Do you remember um, when I was younger, I would always have some adult come up to me and say, where did you go? Or they'd come up and I'd be staring at the floor in that daydream. Oh, interesting. And that never happens. First of all, there's no daydream anymore. I'm staring at a phone. (laughs) Totally. So I've been making myself lately. Put the phone down to stare at the pattern in the rug. Is it hard, though, to do that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the compulsion... Three seconds in is, you better get on Instagram. Right. Well, and that's how I am. That's, I think, why music for me has always been really tough. It's always been a, what has felt like a struggle or a, some sort of battle because it's really just a very solitary act of, of preparation. I mean, pr- practicing is this solitarily painful. And so what's, wh- what's more fun than that? Kind of anything <laughs> kind right. of anything in the right. world um and so or is it i, mean, I don't know and, i mean that's the thing i i've just struggled with it for i swear like 20 something years especially as i've become more serious and uh, you know in high school when i actually started to really dive in um i'd been taking lessons since six years old but when i really decided um i really dove in but it, it was always like this very extreme task and I would do everything extreme, wake up at six, but it's never been easy. I mean, when you were just talking about looking at our phones, I was thinking about how at IU, I didn't have a smart, I don't know if there really were smartphones, but um, I would like, af- every practice break I would take, and I remember I would always think I was taking way too many, I would like go down to this one phone in our lounge and I would call my answering machine or my voicemail to see if anyone had called like obsessively so I needed attention or I needed like I needed to sort of distract myself all the time and so Although I, back then that's also how work came in right so you could get a yeah, gig I, yeah but I wasn't getting <laughs> <laughs> really just calling to see if someone I like one of these straight crutches was probably like <laughs> wanted to get pizza and he called to get want to get pizza like again it was just like obsessive obsessive addictive behavior which again that's like a cornerstone of my <laughs> my existence it feels like well it seems like you've channeled it into into your music and I try I mean I I think I've romanticized literally every past moment of my life as a time where I was more disciplined than I am in the present moment. And so I look back at everything else I've ever done and think, oh, well, you accomplished that because you were so focused. But of course, at the time, I was struggling with that kind of sense. I mean, I think that's being a musician, though, is... more and just human. We're always going to struggle. I don't... Yeah. Some of us. I mean, I think if you're committed to what you're doing and passionate about it, one realizes that the work is really never done. You're constantly spinning like that hamster on a wheel. Well, the struggle doesn't need to be negative. No, it's yeah, just I guess, realigning. But, Isn't that kind of the gift of Cage? Is, I think... This is about allowing creative freedom, reorienting your perspective. Well, and also, I think in his writings and in some of, like, you know, his his words to students, his whole credo seemed to be that the work will set you free. You working is you living. Once you stop working, 
you're just going to sink. Right. And again, I kind of aspire to that. But at, at the same time, well, when does the work stop? It never does. does it and stop? so that's, I think, where if I use the word struggle, it's just because it's hard to turn off or it's hard if, if one is not working to not feel like to spin out. And that's what I can do too. Or it's like, whoa, whoa, I'm like, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. I should be working on the second book. You know, it should be like, you know. so, but I don't know if everyone's like that. <laughs> I mean, some people really don't live that way. And I think of like non-musicians, non-artists, and I think, oh, that maybe that's nice. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't choose it, but. I wouldn't either. But I do think that. Um, not every life is is built around a sense of like cre- production and creation and and like that kind of what am I doing to I don't know better this right now and that's where the practice and all that kind of the the actual not practice in terms of like musical practice but like practice as a discipline I mean I guess I guess that's a relatable thing for anybody if you're an athlete or anything there's always a practice. There's always a practice. Uh, do you feel that this kind of anxiety comes from comparing yourself from others? Or are you just in... I, I, think, guess, I think I've just always idealized what I think I can be doing. I see. And, I mean, if anything, I always think everyone else is like has, has it way more figured out than I do. I do think that. I also don't think that that's incredibly unusual. I'm not like that naive, but I do... If there, if anything, it's not like a comparing myself, but it's sort of like it's just knowing myself and kind of and that's it's always been that, um, and just just wanting to do better and so yeah and but I'm happy I'm happy that that there's that engine burning because that's that's why I'm just always wanting to learn new music and try stuff out and take take those kind of leaps. The concert, these concerts that I've been doing out here have been mostly new stuff. It's not like getting on stage and um, being like, oh, this will go, this will be, you know, I've been doing this one for 15 years, right. so yeah. whatever. They're all relatively new. So tell me how you came up with the program. You co curated this crosshatch um, well, the, series at the Broad. Yeah, so the Broad, um, Ed Petuto at the Broad um, knew that I kind of live in this world or that I'm an enthusiast of these of these composers like Cage and his his circle and it just so happened that they were um bringing in this incredible Jasper Johns show and they knew that Johns was in that circle too and that they were really intimately involved in um in each other's work um Cunningham, Johns, Rauschenberg, Cage and by extension the the composers who Cage was interested in and surrounding himself with as well. And who influenced Cage also, make no mistake. Um, and so that's where it started. And, and they, so I was approached really like, well, what could a musical program look like? And then with, with, <laughs> so, with the like multitude of ideas. And what's funny is I was like, I really don't want this to be like the Adam show. I don't want this to be like my recital. And I was very clear, mm. like, I don't, this doesn't need to even be, you know, quote unquote piano recital maybe that's not what we do here like maybe that's not appropriate like okay I know we'll do a piano recital like I was like I don't know if that really makes sense but so we just kept kind of talking about different ideas and I read a ton of 
basically what they were reading in preparing to put up the show, right. I read. Yeah, I went last Friday, and your program is brilliantly well, <laughs> aligned with the copy on the wall. Well, that's the thing, is that I was reading that copy, and I was reading the research that was informing that copy, because I had met Jasper Johns for one second. <laughs> in, in, um, he, an elevator door was literally closing. I had played an Ellsworth Kelly, the Ellsworth Kelly um, Memorial at the Philadelphia Museum two summers ago, and, and Johns came. But at the time, I was like, oh, Jasper Johns is here? That's a very famous person. Like, you know, I didn't really connect um, everything he had seen and all of the ways he had touched all these composers and lives that I, I just didn't, like, make... I didn't know that, honestly. Um, and at the very end, the person who had brought me into that said, "Have you? did you meet Jasper? And I was like, no. And he, oh, come, come, come. And we saw, it, like, the doors were closing, <laughs> like, out of a movie. And, like, uh, my friend stuck his hand in and the door opened. And then he said, here's Adam. He played the piano. And we shook hands. And it was like... But it was very quick. Anyway, I just read through all of this stuff and was just scribbling notes of like, oh my God, there's so much overlap. I mean, there's so much we could do here. There's, there's just so much. And it was from that that we were like, oh, there's, there's some really straight ahead connections. The Seasons, The Perilous Night, like Toy Piano Stuff. That's the concert that you came to where it was just like, well, here are like the most direct connections. And incidentally, lucky me, they all had to do with piano pieces. And, but then there was like, well, there's also all this overlap with like Japanese music and Japanese art and Japanese composers. What do we do with that? And then there's all this other kind of overlap and it grew into three programs. And when they said, would you like to do like three? (laughs) Okay, okay, (laughs) sure. And so that's how it happened. And those programs were getting sort of like you know, like a pottery wheel. Like they were just still always getting kind of refined the more that we were thinking, like how can this be really lined up perfectly so that every single piece has a reason for being there. There's not a wasted piece. And um, it's been a real gift. I mean, when it's over, when we when I do this show on, on Wednesday in two days, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be really sad after <laughs> because... It's just been such a, a joy to actually have a platform for all these pieces that really very very rarely get a platform that, you know, you can put on a show. This is one thing I've learned ever since even the 50 state tours. You can put on a show of music. Like, that's not, there's no crazy, like, gauntlet. You put on a show. I mean, I tell that to people too. Like, you can do it. <laughs> but to actually play these pieces and have a platform like the Broad and have people like the audience you saw, and we can, we can talk about that too, whether, whether it hits the target or not um, for kind of a broad audience, no pun intended, is that it's still such an exciting opportunity to be like, whoa, I can actually hit this group of people with these pieces that might work regularly like in a gallery space or a smaller concert hall. So that's been really exciting, especially because I think people do like it. But did what was your experience out there? Because I don't know what goes on in the audience, except when they're snoring right, and right. freaking out and eating chips and all that stuff, which, <laughs> ha- which has happened. And so, but I don't know, that night that you came... I was mostly concerned about people not being able to see. Right, right. Like, that was a thing. And I didn't mind that so much, the kind of 
whack-a-mole situation that happened as everyone's kind of popped up because they need they needed that. I thought it was a great idea because I thought, oh, the, you're going to lose a lot of these people. If they yeah, think they, that they can't do that, like that's right. the thing is like, hey, but we're in a concert. We can't move, right? You know, like that kind of idea, right. which isn't so necessary. Kind of became a happening. <laughs> <laughs> but some were, you know, silver did some people seem? Did some people seem like lost? Oh, really? some. Really? The majority. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And if they stayed, I think it might have just been because they felt like they should or... <laughs> I mean, I say because your plane was extraordinary. But no, that's interesting. Well, maybe, maybe like it's like me on the plane, except they Don't, couldn't look at absolutely. their phone. <laughs> oh, they were looking. They were looking. Oh, they were. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. oh, yeah. But you know, it's it's well, that's funny, and it's all been a real experiment in like how do we? How do you present this? How do we present this? How do we present this in a way so that it actually transcends? Well, transcends expectation, I guess. Right. And so. And how, you know, an audience can come through the John's exhibition and, but maybe not be able to sit through a piece that literally was written. Right. <laughs> right. As he was sitting next to him kind of idea. Right. Um, so that for me is, is pretty unbelievable. Like well, the kind of buffet, here we go with the buffet again. It's like, I'm going to choose that and I'll choose that and I'll choose yeah, that. Yeah. And, well, it's always fun to watch people in, whenever I go to a friend's concert, I love watching the people and just seeing how they're how they're making their way through this this situation i'm so occupied that for me a concert always goes by in a flash it always goes by super fast i i lose time and so i'm not a reliable like source for knowing how the audience is doing again unless there's like immediate feedback which is why like i've always really respected and been pretty odd by like comedians because like their feedback is so immediate and like impossibly like it's so impossible to be dishonest as an audience member in like a comedy show yeah absolutely and so their feedback is so unlike mine where you could add one of those 90s laugh tracks <laughs> to the program but, like people again like in a concert hall there there's a code of politeness and behavior even if some people don't do that again like the people someone's eating chips or whatever which is a distancing mechanism holds people don't come for that reason right New yeah people, right well yeah and that's happening even right now with like this movie the quiet place when you <laughs> a friend of mine is a producer on that movie so i've been i've loved watching people's reactions and it's funny because a lot of like on social media, people are commenting like, so-and-so was eating chips. Or the popcorn, or, right? You order this popcorn. Yeah, and, and they're then... like, oh, it was totally ruined because so-and-so, like these people were talking or making. And so it's interesting that this kind of concert hall ethic is making its way into all these different kind of, but, but again, like there is at least an etiquette that protects actually me and my feelings, <laughs> which like a comedian doesn't have, for instance, like it's an immediate feedback that they get that's incredibly like brutally honest. I, I actually admire that. Uh, to me, it seems really scary. Right. Well, in the performance music, you, I mean, you have an intuition or a sixth sense about that, right? You can feel the room. I think so. I mean, I also, in concert music, the audience is also quiet like typically or should be. So I, I can't really gauge that either. I've had situations though where, because I, I'll talk a little, where I'll go out there and I'll think, oh, these people are really not with me. And that's interesting. But 
it's hard to even get J. Sorry, to gauge that because they might just have walls up because they think they're supposed to have walls up. I'm not supposed to laugh because I'm in a concert and I'm in a classical concert, you know. So, but then here you brought in the museum crowd. Who, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that I think is. It's fantastic, but is like, I think they were cut off guard. Really? Which? But see, like, I wouldn't. I. I. It's hard for me to know what crowd is which. Again, from my perspective, well, like you had a better perspective of that. It's blurring. Yeah, right? those lines are blurring. Well, and with this music, there is such a crossover too. Um, and I think composers like Cage n- knew that even at the time of the oh, compo- composition absolutely. of these pieces, is that. And I'm reading this book by um, Carolyn Brown, who was really sort of a dancer muse of Merce Cunningham um, through the earliest years and through much of his career. And um, yeah, it's... I actually just totally forgot what I was going to say. (laughs) <laughs> well, God. Yeah, I'm trying to think of why I was talking about Carolyn Brown. Yeah, I did watch part of that documentary. Oh, put, oh, that, yeah, the German one. That's very That's cool. Why, yeah, yeah. No, I don't remember why I was bringing that up. Carolyn Brown. Uh, it was something about the book that she was. Carolyn Brown writes in her book that she quotes these um reviews that make a big point of saying that like at a Cunningham dance concert you're getting like not really a dance crowd you were getting every artist from every medium it was like a magnet for all these different art forms and since Cage's music was right there with it it's just interesting that there was I think at the time maybe it's happening now also but there was such a crossover and that this music actually lived there lived in the gallery lived in museum um in those spaces not so much the whenever cage's music I'm, that's this is a huge general generalization i'm going to say but when it was put in the concert hall is when musicians would like as he would say act foolishly or they would reject it and audiences would re- you get the most conflict and the most misunderstanding and some of the most famous stories at least of that happening are when his music was sort of placed in these concert halls where it's actually like seems to the to just someone being introduced to oh that's shouldn't that be where it's working best not necessarily no, no it almost undermines the point of it and uh, John's too I th- at a certain point I thought it's funny that we're in these paintings hanging on walls and it's a it's true I know right I know what you're saying but his work in general for me is really it sneaks up on me like it's well i couldn't believe it did you see what i put on facebook <laughs> what i called terrifyingly prophetic so it was the orange eye with oh, the flags yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i mean that's the thing I, re- I just remembered kind of getting i'm gonna go through i'm excited to go through it again the exhibit i've gone through it a number of times now because the first time i went through it i was just like oh this is really nice but then by the end all these things start to sneak up on me and like Cage, a someone a visual artist friend of mine brought up how you know Johns doesn't paint from imagination. Like I'm going to paint this tree because it's a tree from my. Ma-. He'll like bring a tree from something he's seen and put it there, and he'll draw it with discipline, or he'll paint it with discipline, and he'll recreate it. But it's borrowed still in a way, and there's all these borrowed things, almost like a collage, except he's actually painting it, which is so stunning. But once you start to like 
think of the things he's starting to borrow, it gets a little intense. Like in the seasons when he starts to like bring in these silhouettes of a child and then him and like a bunny. Like, it's like what the, what's going on here? And it's almost as absurd and abstract as as you want it to be or as incredibly deep and like too close to home as you want it to be. And those later paintings where suddenly just like placed in the middle of it is the floor plan of his grandfather's house where he was growing up because he was completely displaced all over the place as a child. And suddenly you see this floor plan and it's like, and in a late piece, something like that can suddenly almost knock me on my feet or it's just like, Oh, what's that doing there? You know? And I, I think just that's find... what the audience isn't quite allowing that when it comes to the music. Yeah. Right? Because the music is doing exactly the same thing. Well, you that's the thing is like, it's interesting, you know, because I think in Cage's earlier music, if we're going to talk about Cage, is he was kind of creating, even if he was using kind of images or sounds, like the prepared piano, might you might think of that as a borrowed, he's borrowing per- percussion sounds, but he's still, in a way, is generating out of his imagination. And it's interesting to watch his music, and even some of the early pieces that are pulling from, like, radio and, like, test tones. He's still borrowing and kind of collaging. But it's interesting to watch his, in his, like, creative life, move away from generating out of his own imagination. Even some of the pieces that start to play with chance, he'll, like, use chance elements to rearrange and organize material that he's still coming up with. Like, still composing in, like, the most conventional sense of composing these sounds. And it's interesting to watch him kind of move, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, surrendering that to other things, increasingly so. And then it becomes a very, almost like borrowing, but borrowing from, like, star charts, borrowing from the universe, borrowing from a system. And so, yeah. Whatever he could do, basically, to remove himself, right? Well, to sort of, like, again, it's to me, it's really, it's, it's, there's a parallel to John's here, I think, or could be, um, in that there's a distance, and yet he is the creator of the piece. And so the piece, that planet of that piece, is the the creation of him, the composer. Just like... But for me, the paradox is so is that the optic you're looking at, the distance in you, is something that you know very well, like the American flag. Well, yeah. Or but a then C you major to, scale. Well, that's the thing. But then you have to... It, one, you're confronted then with the creator... I think. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, if if the thing is uh, like, say, the John's painting, and it seems like, well, what's going on here? This are all very familiar objects. What one might feel left with is, oh, well, then why did he do that? Or what? What's the big why here? And that might be like a dead end. the The answer might be, well, there is no why. I mean, I think that's a simple answer. Maybe that is well, the answer. I think the viewer is the why. Well, yeah. I mean, so with Cage you get these pieces that are really, well, where he's removed himself in a sense, but the piece is him. Like he's created it. So with a piece like telephones and birds, which is like bird calls and you're, and people are calling, um, kind of dead phone numbers, phone numbers that are only return like recordings. And it's all arranged as this complex thing. And it's all through chance. And he's not really you don't have to be a musician to do it you have to be able to like play the game of the piece and then the piece activate but 
that universe of that piece is his creation. And so there's something still very, there is a big why. Why, are, why birds? Why, why the sound of a dial tone? Why the sound of you clicking a hanging up? Like all of, suddenly it's incredible. It can be, again, as profound or as not profound as you want, but it's hard to deny that it's the product of a composer's vision, which I think is inherently personal. You know what I mean? So as ab- abstract as it is, the thing itself is personal. I think that's what's so brilliant or so exciting about watching that timeline of Cage's creative life is that even as he moves toward expression removal of his own personal expression because that's very present in the earlier music um there's we never lose him and actually i think we get a really strong impression of where he is in that moment and i think the same could be said for john's absolutely um it's just what's interesting is that that can mean a whole bunch of things for the listener the viewer and that's where it becomes this mirror it's so, mm-hmm. And that's where modern music and modern art, it becomes a mirror of the person viewing it. And that's, I mean, that's why I think it's so exciting about it all. For me, the answer for that is that the intent is so clear. Yeah. It might be something that seems random or chance, but the intent is absolutely clear. Because it's there, you know. I mean, well, that's the thing. I mean, one could... Well, no, because we have a lot of art that's the intent is not clear, Right. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to think of what you mean. Do you think with, like, John's, the intent is so clear? Absolutely. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. See, I like... That's why it doesn't, in the end, really matter. That's why you can have four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. See, but that's so funny, because, like, with John's, I'm confounded by it, because I don't know, like, why any of it's happening. (laughs) 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 I, I mean, I guess, but what you see is so clear... But, uh, the, no, but what the artist has seen and is oh, expressing. Oh, that's interesting. Really? That's so funny. What was that quote? Because um, I don't, I totally don't get what he's expressing. Clear intent orchestrates its own fulfillment. Ah, well, again, that's kind of sort of the Cunningham thing of like the the movement is the expression. It's not but I'm yes. I'm moving to express my sadness. Right. I'm moving because I'm a palm tree. Yeah, it's the direction in which it's gone. If you go the other direction, it's the movement is the movement. And what I think they were arguing is like that doesn't mean it's not powerful or emotional for the viewer, but that's like I'm not going to control that for you or I'm not going to tell you where and when to feel what you're feeling. But feel free to engage with this movement and do what you want with it. Just like that experience of sitting and listening to a sound. Do what you want with it. Um, but that's what's so funny about the Johns thing. Because to me, like, seeing an American flag is, like, super vague to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I I can't figure out why it's there. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. See, I feel like it's an, it's an activator. It's yeah, a, it's a trigger, right? So that these are, it's like an onions, right? You keep peeling it away, but you're going to keep getting the filters until you get to the essence. Right. Well, and that it's in the, with a lot of John, another visual artist brought up to me, a lot of John's paintings are, I mean, they're useful. Like the the number is a number. You can express the number, you see the number and it can be a number. It's not a transfigured number. 
you know, or it's not a flag that's, you know, so distorted. Sometimes you can heal distorted, but it's interesting how it's there. I mean, the map is an actual map. There's Vermont and there's North Dakota. Like, you know, like, right. <laughs> even if it's still like because dripping or that, but you can actually say like, that's the map. Right. And some people will only see the map. Right. But still, I think I'm not sure like I'm so confident that I know why he's painted a map. You know what I mean? Or that I like... I think it's more of a feeling thing. Yeah. And not an intellectual. For me, it's like, I my experience with, with John's is that he's taking this... Whatever's flashing through his mind at any given moment, he's somehow found a way to slice it like... <laughs> like mm. a like in a deli, mm-hmm. slice this thing, and then not just slice it and and actually have it preserved there, but to like preserve to the extent that he could devote a month to actually illustrating that slice of that split second. Right. And that split second might be a flag, a bunny, his shadow, the floor, the blueprint, and then like actual balls. Yeah, and then testicles. <laughs> like it's like okay, which again that is there's that's our brain. I was actually <laughs> shocked that um, I told the friend that I went with that the exhibition wasn't more sexual, I, except for the that one painting with the slash and the and the two balls. I didn't find it. Oh overtly. yeah, the slash. And then there is there's one that's called tantric. Oh, yeah, the right, 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 yeah. yeah. But and even that I didn't find sexual. Yeah. Well, in a you know what I mean? That's it's Yeah. I don't know, there must be more. I don't it's who know I don't know how how or why that happened. Um the idea that there was sort of a gay kinship amongst these fellas is I think hard to deny. Well, that it's, we can hear easy. in the music, we can see in the art, we can... And we just know it's there. The connected and, thread. And it, and I think it lends itself to the comfort and trust that they had in each other because it was a different time. And, and it was that, survival. Yeah, and they, again, yeah, totally. And I mean, it comes, kind of goes to what we were talking to, is that overlap of art as a survival technique. So they did the same thing you did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, no I'm not a, joking. It, no, in a way. Here's four gay men... Um, there could either be, you know, you could be beat up or yeah, you could start a happening. You can actually, yeah, you you can actually create that boundary, that barrier um, using the art. This, and that's, yes. yeah, and that's, the, it's, I, I'm tempted to say distraction, you know, but it is, there's a, the, it becomes this activity that one can engage in. I don't think it's a distraction. I think it might be a... Um, well, a distraction for other people, at least. Right. Well, yeah, not for me. That's why the flag sent them all, right? <laughs> it totally. But it's an expansion. You that flag. It's an expansion for them. Right. Yeah. All uh-huh. right, Adam. Well, <laughs> <laughs> was, was there actually any other question? I feel like we didn't do any... Did we do any questions? <laughs> well, this is, I think this is perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>